Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. And this is Aaron. Did I do that wrong? <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> yes. Can we keep okay. that as the introduction? Because that's like perfect. I'm totally fine with it. I'm totally fine with the bloopers being in our show. So we'll just move in. We'll edit it as we need to. <laughs> so we are joined today um, by two people in the field uh, that are part of the ABA reform movement. We're super excited. We've had this episode planned for um, a couple months now. A um, couple months, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like right when... What uh, I think it was like all the protests and everything started after like the the uh, George Floyd's murder. I remember having it was like we met with um, you know uh, yeah and kind of conceptualized what this is going to look like. So we've got uh, Joe Ramirez at Messina and Jeff Newman joining us tonight. How are you all doing? I'm doing good. Good. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you Super for being specific. here. Definitely. Yes. Um. So why don't we just start with you all introducing yourself? So Joe, like I think you're first up on our on our list here. Just give us some um, background. Yeah, so um, I'm a BCBA. Um, I've uh, been a BCBA for a little over 12 years, um, but uh, I started off in this field wanting to do um, business stuff uh, at Florida State University, and then um, I did graduate school at uh, Southern Illinois, um, and so that's kind of like where I started with ABA. Um, and then later on in my career, I started reading more and more um, about the autistic community um, and started getting more and more uh, frustrated with ABA and really wanting to get out of the field. But um, I, I couldn't figure out how. Um, so I just started uh, kind of trolling um, ABA pages and autistic pages, trying to <laughs> just be like, uh, whenever the opportunity came up, like if it was brought up, I would say something. And usually that led to me being um, banned. And so that's kind of how I met Jeff when we were banned together on another thing. And uh, <laughs> um, and then I was on a, another um, an autistic page. I, I can't remember which one. And I was, you know, just despondent, kind of doing my like, you know, they're right. <laughs> um, whenever an ABA post came up and I had, um, someone named Kara messaged me asking, like, are you really like for real? Um, do you really believe believe us and that kind of thing and she asked me to help her with some advocacy and um so then she and i kind of uh came up with the idea for the the bcas plus um autistics for reform uh to hope try to like make change because um, like i said i was i was kind of like at a point where i was done um with seeing what i was seeing and i didn't want to do fine by myself i either wanted to leave or, or better um and so uh, being able to do that was, was really cool, me and her. Um, and she actually runs a little thing herself called the um, Paper Boat Autism Acceptance Library. So Which is awesome. Yes. She, she it is an amazing really little corner of the internet. 
Yeah, and she she's very passionate for um, getting better representation in literature of um, especially uh, females. So kind of that's that's how I ended up here. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thank you. And Jeff, what about you? So um, I'm autistic, and I am professionally, I work as kind of a social work type, um, and I work professionally with a lot of BCBAs. Um, and I've had plenty of eye-raising moments uh, working professionally with BCBAs. So at some point, I kind of became aware that there existed this whole big kind of online community in the ABA world uh, with shockingly large to me BCBA groups of you know 15,000 here, 20,000 there. And I started joining these groups because like, hey, these people are like, I can give you some feedback on some of this stuff that um, maybe you don't necessarily want to be associated with and maybe um, and it went super great, um, meaning that I instantly got banned for kind of raising concerns about just stuff like Judge Rottenberg Center and why there's, you know, do you really want to be associated with that? Have you thought this through? Ban. Um, and so one of the people I met along the way, as Joe mentioned, um, is we got mutually banned from kind of being in the same comment thread. Um, and... Uh, but I struck up a conversation with Joe and found her fantastically genuine and one of the few people that I felt actually was actually hearing us willing to listen to the criticism and willing to engage and figure out where to go with it. And I was tremendously impressed by that. Um, but fast forward several months. Um, and at this point, I'm kind of fed up with my interactions with the ABA world and I'm kind of disengaged. You don't want to hear me. I don't have to talk to you. Uh, and so I'm hanging out on an autistic space on the internet on Facebook. And um, a lot of fellow advocates I know start talking about this weird group that messaged uh, this weird ABA group that, you know, kind of messaged and asked for autistic people to join. Uh, and I was very very on the fence with that. I am very, you know, in addition to my wonderful experience kind of that I'd had a few months before, there is a lot of tokenism that takes place when autistic people are asked to be present in the ABA world and disability services in general. And I was really concerned about stepping into something like that. Uh, but I put my trepidation aside and I went ahead and joined the group and I found it was Joe that set up the group and I was absolutely thrilled. Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of, kind of how I got in. I don't think if it was anybody other than Joe that I would be doing kind of having this role that I play in it now because Joe's one of the few people that I trusted and she's earned that trust. Uh, and so uh, that was closing in on about two years ago, right? Um, and so uh, in those two years, a lot's happened. Um, the group went from, I there was less than 100 people when I joined. I think there's maybe 60. And now there's about 1,500, 1,600 people in the group. It 
uh, it increases by 10 to 15% each month. And that is with us being very discriminant about membership. Um, and it's part of a team effort at this point. For a while, it was kind of uh, just me, Joe, and Michael was kind of the core group for a long time. And now there's now there's quite a lot of people that are kind of the, the leadership team helping to join the group and onboard new people to kind of what this what this is all about and what we're trying to accomplish uh and that is an amazing group of people um it is a really great mix mix of autistic advocates and uh lots of autistic professionals working in aba and lots of allies so um that's yeah that's kind of how i i uh, got into the fold and um, like Jeff mentioned, the, the leadership team, you know, it, it, moderating a group like this is is really tough. Um, and then as we've kind of grown and t- time, uh, it's hard to believe it's been, you know that long. But uh, you know, now we're we're able to like provide these uh, educational units for people coming in. And um, right now, unfortunately, they allow parents. We don't have the you know training for that for that population yet. But um, it'd be you know sometime down the line. But uh, like Jeff said, it, it, it's we have to kind of like meter people in because otherwise it's it's really tough to model. Do have an excellent team of people that all um, put in a lot of work. Yeah, being part of your group, I mean, there's a lot of labor that you can see just immediately. Like once you join, you see the units that are there, the time that you all took to compile the resources to tell people about, you know, certain topics model of disability to tell people about using autistic um, language or, uh, you know. Identity you know, first language. Uh, what'd you say? Identity first language. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And, you know, teaching people about, you know, JRC and neurodiversity and stuff. So there's a there's definitely a lot of labor. Are there any other folks you've you've told us about the leadership, any other folks that you want to shout out in particular? And also, can you tell us a little bit about when you when you created the group, what's your vision for it? Like, what's the vision for ABA? Um, what's the vision for your group? Um, how do you see this moving forward? Um, yeah, it, can I read the mission that we, <laughs> is that okay? okay. Of course. Um, so the mission of ABA reform is to work to change systemic problems with a applied behavior analysis and its application to developmentally delayed, neurodivergent and other oppressed groups as a therapy. We recognize the need for intersectionality and pledge to also work against systemic sexism, ableism, and racism in ABA. We believe this change includes fundamental paradigm shifts in how applied behavior analysts are educated, culture within ABA. We bring together neurodivergent, but especially autistic individuals and ABA providers to drive activism in the form of education, protests, petitions, and engaged reform discussion. We believe ABA as a therapy will only have a future if every person working in the field adopts reform. And so I guess that really covers like um, that. I understand behaviorism. I'm really well trained in behaviorism. And I understand that there's a difference. But ABA likes to pretend that there's not this difference um, between ABAism and and ABA as a therapy. Um, And so even the people who don't work in the autism industry as BCBAs, they, they have to know what's going on and be willing to be another voice that says, yes, I'm ABA and I know the problems. So when we first started 
you know, thinking about this conversation, Aaron and I, we were having conversations in the background about, you know, when to have this conversation, who to have it with, um, were we ready to have the conversation specifically based on who we have it with? Um, we weren't sure um, what we could, what our platform could provide, if anything, to the conversation. And so when um, you all approached us, is that right? It was a few months ago. Did you all approach us about I this? Think you guys were, you all were talking to Melissa. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yes. Uh huh. And so, you know, we obviously felt felt like, you know, this conversation is so important, so critical to have. But there's a lot of resistance against or about ABA reform. Um, What do you all think this resistance specifically is about? Well, it kind of goes against everything we've been taught (laughs) in um, graduate school, Um, especially uh, as and then what, okay, so in graduate school, depending on where you went, you either get like really strong behaviors, kind of like a, a, ABA and in general, not not well-rooted in, in behaviorism, not to programs or anything, but but there's a difference um, in some of them. And so uh, I feel like they don't get um, a good, good grounding on, again, like I'm saying, we provide a lot of service um, to the autistic community. <laughs> And um, families of autistic children, and we we don't spend any. I don't want to say any of our education because I only know my program and the people I supervise. But it, we don't spend enough time on learning about um, autistic uh, culture and the main population we serve. And yet, when we get out of grad school, we're handed all these curriculums, all these assessments that are based in ABA, created usually by BCBAs and extremely, you know, um, norm reference, neurotypical referenced. Um, and so this is, this is how we're trained. And it's very much in opposition to what the autistic community is, is saying that they want and need from supports in society to be able to um, have the modifications and accommodations they need. In ABA, we don't focus too much on um, accommodations and modifications. We focus on independence um, and those measures. And we're also taught that we work. We work really well and we have the data to show it. And so it, it's it's just really hard to have convers- these conversations when it goes in against everything that you've been trained professionally to do and think. So I was going to say that um, from my perspective, I think the ABA world has taken a lot of steps. Some intentional and some not to kind of delegitimize criticism like a really common perspective i encounter in the aba world is that criticism is only criticism because the critic doesn't actually understand aba uh, is one of kind of the kind of implicit things that if they understood aba that is impossible to have concerns over maybe not like you know, a lot of the beef isn't necessarily about the core mechanics or the baseline theory. When we're talking about what gets applied to autistic people when they walk into a center on a default day of their life, we're talking like worlds different in terms of theory versus many steps down the line to actual application. And, and like, there are some legit beefs there. Um, and but But a lot of it's just dismissed as if you actually understood then you'd know why we're right. Um, I think there's 
a lot of conversation in the ABA world about science. Um, some, yeah, you may not like this, but from an outside perspective, it, sometimes it seems kind of fetishistic towards science. Um, and it's, there's a lot of conversation about science, the scientific process, and a lot of discounting of other non-ABA-based, evidence-based practices and professionals in other fields. Um, there is there is kind of an implicit bias towards who was originated within the ABA world. That means it is superior to something equally evidence-based that originated outside the ABA world. Uh, and then finally, stuff like... Um, Section 6.01, 6.02, and the Personal Ethical Compliance Code. Um, that's what that means, right? That's what PEC stands for. Um, the, the Ethics Code, in any case. Um, there's a lot of people that interpret that as having an ethical responsibility to defend the ABA world from any and all criticism, even stuff that's valid. Um, and so that sets up a lot of walls to really listening and really chewing on what is somebody's experience. Yeah. So I, I also think uh, the reason these conversations are hard to have is because of emotions. Um, and ABA doesn't really like to, you know, consider emotions very often. But um, we all have contextual histories, right? Um, and those influence how we how we things and how we perceive things. So when we're getting these conversations or seeing them for the first time, there's a lot that goes into it. Mine, when I first started uh, seeing them, I was like, oh my gosh, what did I just spend all my money on? Like, and that's a big one. Like people, people spend a lot of money getting their, their ABA degrees. Um, and so to, to see that and then, or to do that and then see these uh, criticisms and you know, very valid uh, arguments against ABA, it's, it's kind of causes cognitive dissonance. And, um, you know, there's so many other contextual factors that can come in, you know, sometimes parents, um, after seeing their child get ABA, will go and get their degree and become a BCBA. And so their contextual history after seeing, you know, hearing these conversations might be one of guilt, you know, it, so it's a lot of these emotions that are causing you know, DCBAs to interpret um, this, this conversation, this stimuli uh, in very different and emotional ways. And, but it goes into my uh, love of contextual behavior sciences and how <laughs> we should be considering that for like everything we do. Yeah, we're fans of contextual behavior science over here. Um, Jeff, when you were talking, you know, I was thinking about the one, you mentioned how, you know, it, only us taking this viewpoint of like only our science is right and like the gaslighting that comes behind there. We were taught that, right? You you mentioned our uh, ethical and compliance code um, being taught that our information trumps everyone else and philosophic doubt only applies to everyone else. Like everyone else is wrong, but uh, not us. We can't exactly. consider that. Um, we just did an episode, a crossover episode with another podcast and I was talking about it, like, you know, for behavior analysis, for me, like you see the colonization, right? With this very Western European um, viewpoint. And so um, for me, I see it as like the ABA mission trips, right? To think that we're gonna just go and preach the good word of ABA behavior science to other folks. And there is no, nothing, 
there's there's nothing better and and i see it very much in line with like that extremely religious you know kind of like cultish behavior at times um especially thinking that we can do no evil do no wrongs and that we have all the answers so i was hearing that as you were speaking jeff oh well i i appreciate you making that connection i um one of the things i didn't disclose in my introduction is i'm a preacher's kid um and i very much see a lot of the conversations i see take place in like the aba world uh feel very evangelistic um it is because because i've seen plenty of people that behind what they view as you know not to a public audience they they have almost the exact same concerns i have talk all the time about the influence of big money and lack of training and cookie cutter interventions that's widely held concerns but that does not lead like that is when people external to the ABA world raise those concerns, um, the conversation isn't, yeah, it's a problem. We got to do something about that. It's, it's, I do good ABA. No, 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 come, come on in. We're, we're, we're great. Uh, that's some of that old school stuff. Um, there's, there's a lot of that that gets layered on by the same people and having nearly identical conversations, but one's kind of internal to the congregation and one may not be. Joe, I'm really glad that you brought up um, feelings. I it actually just brought something to mind because and, and Jeff mentalist, just how, mentalist. I, I don't dare like you know, <laughs> um, but I'm glad you brought up the ethics code. And so I actually teach an ethics class right now. And and at the start of that class, um, I tell them that my job is not to teach you how to follow this code, but how to critically analyze it and to find the holes and to find the gaps and to be able to. Um, that if you see something that you're questioning that and that you're willing to take that and what are you going to do about it um, and not just take the language and read it straightforward and say this. And, you know, we talk about individualizing treatment. We talk about um, we just went over the code the other day that talks about um, that you will eliminate environmental conditions that will impede uh, that will impede uh, uh, intervention or something like that. And. I, I kind of gave them these scenarios and I'm like, how is that, you know, how, how, what if we can't eliminate these things? What if we shouldn't eliminate these things? Like, and, and why does it have to impede? Like it just impacts why don't, and we need to change rather than um, somebody else changing, you know, but um, the feelings thing I brought up and it, it was something about like, okay, let's take private events. Cause we are great at saying, okay, philosophic doubt in the sense of maybe this intervention isn't the best, or maybe I should be using this or X, Y, and Z. And, if we don't know how to account for it, we kind of just set it off to the side. So I went through and I was like, what are private events? Um, are they important? Are they valid? If you're in a session with a family and they start talking about emotions and feelings, what do you do with that? And they said, well, we don't pay attention to that. I was like, but you just told me that that's important. You just told me that that's valid. So what do we do with it? This is the part where there are these holes in our science and we can't do anything. They're saying we need this. Why aren't we doing anything about it? Like that's your job is to figure that out. <laughs> not just don't count for it. One of the things I've uh, been able to do and learn as, as I've um, been able to learn more and more and be a, be a better ally um, to the autistic community is just how much um, we are trained in ABA. And again, I don't speak for all programs, but like I remember being taught like, let's come up with an elevator speech so um, you know how to tell people about ABA in a quick minute, in a quick minute. Um, 
or that idea fresh out of grad school of like, yeah, ABA can fix anything. You got a problem with this in the world, like, ABA can do it. You know, like they would say, tell us like, um, the person who came up with the little brake lights on the back um, instead of just the, the side ones, that was an ABA person. So, we're, you know, ABA does everything. And so it's coming out with that training and that uh, mentality, um, mentality <laughs> um, is, is, is ex exactly why it's hard for um, us to challenge uh, what we've been trained is because it is so ingrained and it, it's pretty much all through our training. Like this is how you disseminate this. Oh, um, in grad school, we did um, Ray Miltenberger. He had that dateline. Does anyone know that one? Uh, he did, uh, Ray Miltenberger's big on uh, gun studies and gun safety. And he, ha he was on dateline for a gun safety thing. And they were like, this is it. This is ABA. This is what you all should aspire to is to get ABA on uh, mainstream media, yeah, mainstream media, sorry, uh, just out, out there on the TV, do interviews. They were telling us, spread the, spread the gospel. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, from an outsider's perspective, um, we can tell when you drop into that elevator pitch for ABA uh, and for the most part, it does not come off very well. It sounds exactly like an elevator pitch. It sounds contrived. It sounds pretty insincere. Like, just, I, I have heard so many of those. Um, it, 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 especially because there's an elevator pitch for uh, defraying criticism. Um, and guys, we hear it almost word for word. Um, like, it's just, just outside perspective, outside feedback. Um, it would be better to to have a conversation than than kind of resort back to the stock pitch. I personally, I was thinking about it. You know, I don't believe that it's possible for any one of us who learn ABA, who were part of programs, to just wake up one day and magically do good ABA. I don't think that that's possible. I think that it's going to take a, a whole lot of education, a whole lot of practice, and a whole lot of wash, rinse, repeat. You know, like we have to continuously challenge ourselves and think about the functions of our own behaviors constantly um, to kind of like do like to get rid of some of the stuff that we learned. Like I remember being a young ABA therapist, you know, you gave a demand. So the kid has to follow it. Why? Cause you gave the demand. And, but like, and I remember as I got older and I have a mental health background, so I'm saying this. Never going to get a job. <laughs> never going to do your job if, if they don't follow it. But like, even with like, I have this mental health background. So I was also trained in a different way, but learning ABA still followed the rules that I was taught about ABA. So here I was still having different backgrounds of knowing about trauma, knowing about, you know, uh, autonomy and things like that, still following the rules. And so I, as I got a little bit older in, in, in my experience in the field, I'm like, wow, like, some of the same behaviors that we say we want to teach our kids, like we don't have them ourselves. Like flexibility is huge. Like I just know how many times like we were trying to teach our, our, our kids that we worked with to be flexible, but yet we weren't being flexible. Like, why can't they do it another way? You know? And, and so it's just, for me, it, I think that, like I said, I don't think we're just going to wake up magically and be like, Oh yeah, I do good ABA now. Like, no, it's going to be, 
thinking about this in this moment? Like, am I resorting back to what I was taught before? Am I res- am I being flexible here? Am I listening to what the the person is well, telling? And, well, and and what is good ABA? That's a great question. And and you know, as an ABA person, I defer to you to to you know let us know if that is even possible. Well, and that's where it's you know a lot of the the um dismissals come from is like well aba is not about autism and yet if you if you look at the the stats that's available on the bacb's website um more than 60 percent of uh bcbas um work in in autism and if you add id and dd to that it's it's much larger um and so we're all about feedback you know part of our requirements for super supervising people is to get feedback and give feedback and all that but then when we get feedback from the autistic community it is dismissed. It is it, it is rationalized away. It's it's just not considered valuable feedback, and it's truly just it's a, it's a horrible to just dismiss it just because you don't like it, or it's not said in a well, way too yeah. that's like that that makes you feel comfortable or something like that. Like that's the, what I hear oftentimes is that it's like these really hateful things that are just misrepresentations and they're just, there's no, um, I, I, I don't even know some of the language, but it's just, um, it's almost like aligning with hate speech, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Well, and then it's, they, you know, run into the same issues as, as many um, oppressed groups, which is tone policing, um, just it, those kind of things that, that come up and, and then it's just, ignored um it, it gives them a reason to just ignore people if they're, they're like well they're too angry or they're misunderstanding or whatever it may be and it just allows well and where did that anger come from are. where did that anger come from because that didn't just appear we didn't just one day get together as the autistic world and take a vote and say you know what we're just going to get the torches and pitchforks out for aba because just because that anger came from a place um and that place came from being ignored uh, and having concerns, which over honestly decades and decades at this play point, we are told, you know, shut up, we're helping you. Um, <laughs> and and that has festered. And and I will agree that sometimes it can come across as toxic. Sometimes I don't think it's the most productive, but I get it because. I have, again, I, you know, my, my entrance into let me professionally engage with ABA was uh, silenced and attacked and banned. Get out of our space. You do not belong. Um, and that, that has been almost institutionalized, um, like, for the longest time, and I feel like it's just starting to change, the feedback to, you know, what do you do when some autistic advocate puts a negative review on your page or tells you that ABA is abuse and 70 responses of extinction. Um, Well, let me tell you, you have a responsibility to listen to us. You have a responsibility to listen to us because it's just straight up the right thing to do. We are your target population. We pay your bills and it may be uncomfortable. Sometimes you may not like what we have to say, but if you don't like me as the white dude that I am being in a position of power to make decisions about, say, women's health care, don't do this. 
you have a responsibility to listen. Even if you don't like the message, even if you think we're wrong, our perspective, our, our perspective, it is the most important voice in the room. And it can be difficult. And, and especially now, uh, because it's not just a conversation anymore. There's so much baggage tied up with it. It can be difficult. That still does not absolve you of your responsibility to listen, your responsibility to take accountability, not just for your own actions, but if you're angry and upset that uh, you feel like your reputation is being negatively tarnished because autistic people or other critics have bad things to say about their experiences interacting with ABA folks, um, you have accountability not to attack the messenger there, but if you disagree, if you don't want to be tarred with that brush, speak up, call out the bad actors in your field, put yourself on that line, take accountability for improvement of your field, calls for action to maybe the bad actors don't need to be a part of your field anymore. Um, that's only going to change if you guys get vocal about it. No, no, no. Well, I was just going to say, like, sometimes I think, for at least for me, is helping to um, to see how this mirrors other, um, like, the trajectory and and the actions of of other marginalized groups as well, too, and the other systems. So, if you go back historically and look um, when you know autism kind of first arrived, like, how how were those individuals um, treated? You know, institutionalized things like that. Um, that same system, even go back, like history of ABA, I just shared, um, if any of you have ever watched the documentary of Harry. That system is now our system. Like, it's right. not a new system. The disability service system came straight out of the eugenics era, and we've just right. slowly shifted it over time. But, but that same stuff is where a lot of our ableist baggage is coming from. And it is crucially important to know that history and not shy away. Um, my professional job, I work... I work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, just like my own. And I have people that grew up in institutions and told me, I'm never going to trust you because somebody with your job did this to me uh, not that long ago. So uh, we, we have to really understand that history and understand that it is only because of that history that uh, we feel like this is an acceptable state of affairs now with feeling it's a luxury to listen to disabled people about their own services, feel like as long as that lines up with what I believe is best for your life, I will actually, you know, read my behavior plan I've written about you to and explain it maybe. Uh, those, those should not be viewed as luxuries. And I believe the only reason they are viewed as luxury as optional is because of the history of stripping us of all of our rights, including the right to live, including the right to live in society if we're allowed to live. And you can't shy away from that history. And please don't whitewash that history either. Um, and when I say whitewash, I mean a narrative I hear a lot is that um, the behaviorists were our saviors. They came in an institution they that we could be taught and that's what got us out um let's be honest about why you were going into institutions it was to access a captive population that had no rights that you could control every aspect of our lives to experiment on and that i'm i'm sorry i can't feel good about that um 
and and to that I don't believe that can be sanitized. Uh, I believe that needs to be reckoned with. So I know I interrupted you. Please continue. No, no, that's actually perfect because it was talking. It was like it was it was it's like understanding the history, right? Knowing where that came from, and the same system is still is still there. It just looks different, right? It just takes a different form. Um, you know, potentially, like I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading this book. Um, the, the new Jim Crow, and it talks about slavery, Jim Crow laws, like now mass incarceration and how those same systems, um, they still have the same outcome and they're still there for the same function. They just look different, you know? Um, and, and so what I hear is like, I don't do, like you, you all said, like, I don't hear that. I, I don't do that ABA. I do good ABA. Right. But that, that ABA can still have the same impact. Well, yeah. what, I mean, what is good ABA? Uh, I don't believe good ABA can take place in a bubble because if you're doing perfect, if if you're doing ABA that I could come in and watch and say nothing other than, wow, this is awesome. You nailed it. Great job. But the entire apparatus of everybody else is continually doing the status quo of 2020 today. Uh, are you net helping or hurting? How many people are able to hide behind your banner because you're doing a good job, but you're doing it in a bubble because you're not also being vocal about the need for change. And that's where I see so many people, uh, like so many people come into the ABA reform movement about, I'm going to make my own personal practice great. And that's not actually what we're asking for. Um, if your practice becomes great, wonderful. We're not going to stand in the way, but we want you to help fix the system. Joe, when we met and did like the pre-meeting for this, you had mentioned, and I, I don't, I don't know if you're open to talking about that because I think when we think about good ABA, like if I was to go ask a student what good ABA looks like, it would go very much by the ethics code, very much by like the standards that you're saying that you know that we're being taught. We go and we do our assessment, our VB map, our ABLES. We determine these goals. We work with the parents or the teachers to determine what would be the goals that we would work for for the kid, um, and then we go about with the least restrictive. Um, most like, you know, there are these things that we consider to be good ABA. Um, but you even talked about some of the challenges with the assessments that we have and why, like, that might not even be like, I don't know if you're open to talking about that, but I do think that's important for people to hear. Yeah, I mean, so um, our assessments and our curriculums are rooted in um, making kids look neurotypical um, or at least demonstrate the skills that will make them appear to be neurotypical. They're also heavily gendered, um, especially the social skills curriculum. Um, there's not a lot of room for the LGBTQIA community anywhere in these curriculums. It, they're just extremely problematic. And then they allow uh, these a ABA people who come out, pass their tests, whatever, um, to go. They were trained. Remember, we're not trained in autism. You just get done with school and go get a curriculum and go get an assessment. And and then that's tied to insurance, which is tied to money. <laughs> and it's all just such a, gosh, it's just, I keep saying it's a systemic problem. Follow the money, follow, you know, RBT, RBT um, trainings, that's money. Uh, insurance is making money. The, the huge amount of ABA programs we've seen crop up, it's all, it's all tied to the money and the curriculums, of course, the curriculums and the um, assessments. It's, it's all making money to, to keep it this way. Um, one of the things I wanted to say about uh, feedback 
is uh, similar, not, not feedback, but like similar to what you're saying about um, a press release. Like, uh, because we have cameras on all our phones, seeing the police brutality against uh, uh, black people much more than we used to. Now with the with technology, we're hearing from autistic individuals in their own voices, their own words, what is going on. And rather than move forward and accept these this feedback as valid, legitimate, and true, we want to dismiss it because it is online, because it's in a blog. But we we fail to like we maybe we fail to see that these modifications or these accommodations and the way these uh, some people access and are able to to you know communicate is going to be in this this medium and we should still listen to it and still um you know forward with times and and understand that we should be actually like uh creating ways to get more feedback from this population. i remember and not to say that this is even like 10 years ago but you know in my practice you know thinking that uh behavior issues you know, it just came with the with the job, right? Like, it's just part of it. Like, oh, you keep doing the same thing, you know, it's just supposed to happen. And then, and then at some point you realize like, no, like if you're spending your entire session with someone who is literally, you know, showing you that something's wrong and you're just like the behavior plan, the behavior plan, the evidence is right there, you know, and, and sometimes that we ignore that. And I want to make it very clear because Jeff, you are very clear. It's, it's not about doing good practice for yourself, you know? So like when we're talking about the issue, it is a, we like, you know, just recognizing that all of us are actually part of that problem. Uh, one of the things, you know, you mentioned, uh, have, having difficulty with a kid and it's almost like, um, I don't know if it still is. It's been a while since my initiation, but it felt like you got initiated when you got to beat the crap out of, right? And now I'm like, that person, that child was probably either having a trauma trigger or they were engaging in, in fight, flight, freeze, which is not logically controlled. We shouldn't be wearing this, oh, this, this kid ripped my shirt off uh, during a tantrum today as a badge of honor, which is really gross. And instead being like wow i am seriously doing something wrong here for this to be happening well and what is our collective professional responsibility for engineering settings where that happens um like we we need to account for the fact that for so many children what we're talking about the aba experience being is taking their childhoods away three-year-olds don't need full-time jobs when when we're talking about people being in therapy for 40 hours a week and don't tell me that it's just like play uh because i could decide to stop playing and do something else when i want um it would take it more serious than that um if we are forcing people to conform to an environment even an environment that on the surface is friendly and welcoming and warm with people that care it is still that is an impossibly tall ask just for the hours that we're talking about and and so much of the message and so much of what the goal you know, i've heard so many times that you know well we have to start this really intensive stuff at three because the child has to be table ready by five what um and so 
you know, I'm going to jump in here because there is the question of what is good ABA, and I didn't get a chance to answer that. And I think this kind of segues in is I know what not good ABA is and why, like, so much of what we're doing is ways that the child can conform to, in a lot of cases, a typical education setting. Why in the hell is that the goal? Um, Another systemic like, problem. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I don't see the need for that. I see a tremendous opportunity in the ABA world, which is for better or not, and you're one of the few disability services that you have a you have a lucrative funding stream. So the sky's the limit. I mean, imagine imagine what we're talking about here. You guys honestly have access where you could get a hundred thousand dollar check to make somebody's life better for a year what could we actually be doing with that money uh if we were actually delivering it towards an individual experience that's a, like so good aba to me looks like customized curriculum looks like taking the kid who and looking at what are you interested in what do you see your future as and you know that could be for for plenty of us to you know talk about some stereotypes autistic interest, trains, space, baseball statistics. Um, you, know, you know, we've probably all met the, the kid that's into those um, among many other interests. But so why aren't we taking that kid? Why isn't good ABA going, I have the money to go, this is what this kid is into. I can tie learning to this kid's interest in space and, and I can build a customized curriculum that the kid has buy-in, the kid is into it, and the kid can learn a ton of stuff that they want to learn because I have created the natural reinforcement. Because everybody listening to this podcast, every single person, guarantee you, you did not get to where you are at this stage in your life because somebody uh, at intervals along the way gave you a quarter skittle at the time or 15 minutes of iPad time after you jump through whatever hoops, you did it because it mattered to you. And we, we have so much lost opportunity there in the ABA world where there's, you can do a lot of that. Um, and, and if that was more of the experience of running with the person's values in building getting away from the cookie cutter and the center based whatever and you know the table time and the touch touch yellow touch square get into real learning based on that person's values i think that's consistent with your core principles i think that is consistent with you can write that to access funding uh, and I think that is the future. Um, so that's. Hey, yeah, and I and I agree. And the th reason it's hard, I think, for a lot of BCBAs to conceptualize this is because um, it's not about just teaching the skill. And like, uh, for example, compliance training. Um, people like to say, well, they have to listen to emergency instructions. And an example like running into don't run in the street saying stop. ABA likes to look at it as an isolated thing that we need to teach when it's right. all about context. There yes. are many contexts where you should stop if someone says stop, and there are contexts where you should not stop. And uh, I mean, this is you know, a totally random example, but like, you know, if someone's chasing you, you know, and you're trying to get away from them and they're like saying stop, 
um, and you keep going? Or um, would you maybe stop and look at cars? Or maybe you would stop and wait for the parent. There's so much that can go on. And that's just like looking at that linear. That's not talking about like, maybe they're having fear. Maybe they, they are having fun, you know, whatever they're feeling. The context includes the internal feelings, the sense, sensory processing and histories. But those things interact constantly and can change from minute to minute. So if, if ABA could just think more flexibly <laughs> and um, be more open to accepting these internal states, uh, we could be a, a much better uh, science. Um, Maybe yeah. we'd have less instances of people wanting to run in the street if we did a better job of supporting people to get into environments that actually worked for them that they didn't have to run away from so much. Just saying. And, and Jeff was bringing up a uh, good ABA and, you know, using people's interests instead of like making them go away. And it just, you know, if we're talking good ABA, is Java good ABA? Because in Java, they had an article just recently published on getting rid of someone's interests because they were not uh, appropriate according to the authors. So Can I objectively, the author felt they weren't appropriate. So, so, you know, that, that means that, that, that that's totally valid. Um, when your BCBA doesn't like the stuff you like, it's totally okay for them to, uh, you know, extinguish that love of yours and write a behavior plan and eventually write a paper on it. Gold star. Can, can I ask a question and, and um, no. you all can decide to <laughs> answer it or not. Um, one of the concerns with working um, with children in particular uh, who are in the care of their parents and you have parents who say, I want my child to behave or to do, to do things in this way. And um, as you know, the behaviorist in the situation, our client is the child, right? So of, of course we mm -hmm. need to advocate, but do you have anything in particular for uh, BCBAs who, who deal with that? Um, because you know, the conversations come up. It's been a part of my work since I've been in ABA of talking to parents and saying, well, your kid really likes it. You know what I mean? But then it's like, but I don't want my kid to do it, but your kid really likes it. So like what, you know, is, is there anything that you want to share with us about navigating those conversations with parents who are um, very uh, so much hard pressed to have their kids fit into uh, neurotypical uh, presentations. I think this is where like having a real relationship with the autistic community would be critically helpful in navigating that because um, we're like we're adults. Um, we've we've lived that experience. We can tell you and tell parents what lies on the other side of a lot of this stuff. Um, what lies on the other side of our, our, you know, if we're doing stuff like suppressing stems or, you know, doing a lot of stuff that's really heavy on um, forcing the child to present is more neurotypical versus autistic, uh, we can give you a lot of both personal feedback of um, 
what's called masking um, and the devastating impact that that has in our life and the research backing that up, um, pressure to mask is a core red flag indicator of suicide risk. Um, and so that is what we're doing is we're set, we're giving kids for this particular example, we are giving kids the message when we are teaching them to not stem, to sit quietly, to um, look people in the eye, to, you know, we're, we're not, um, we're not trained, we're not actually training their brain to be neurotypical, we're training them to act neurotypical. And the message the kid is getting from that is I am only acceptable to the extent that I can pretend to be normal. The only way I'm going to have friends is if I can pull this act off. And there is no place for self-esteem with that uh, with that view. Uh, you don't feel safe with that view um, because your safety is contingent on passing. Um, and you don't have an innate, you don't have an, an, a feeling of enough self-worth just by being you to feel like you have a right to be free from abuse or to have healthy relationships, to have unconditional love in your life because everything being set up is to, um, to put those conditions in to, to make it that your value is contingent on living up to this very subjective view of what normal is. So the antidote for that, uh, and one of the things that I would love to see the ABA world do is develop real relationships with the adult community, with the advocacy community, and engaging us in listening to us to help make that outreach to parents as well so they have a better understanding of the actual implications of what they're asking for when they're coming to you and saying that i want my three-year-old to just listen and do what i say um i want my kid to look normal so he's not stigmatized um subject you know stigmatized is one of those incredibly subjective terms that we like to use to justify just fyi um like let's more knowledge of the autistic experience is what helps in those conversations lead you the right way. Um, yeah, and so ABA, AB, it seems like ABA likes to pretend things happen in isolation. Nothing happens in isolation. So the messages Jeff is talking about, like- Except I, the last I, six months. <laughs> and, and I don't know if the difference is um, what the problem is. So for me, it's uh, that autistic individuals were dehumanized um, in my training and uh, emotions were removed. So that combination um, trained me to not care. Uh, I mean, I, wanna, I don't wanna say not care, just it's, it wasn't pertinent. Um, but these messages are being sent regardless if that child is speaking or not speaking um, vocally. Uh, and so I really think um, what we need to do is work primarily with the parents, teachers of um, that child and, and work on their own um, context. So for example, a, uh, a parent who's had a disability, she was bullied a lot in school, has a lot of anxiety and uncomfortable feelings with 
her uh, daughter having, you know, kind of years, especially starting school. And the, the thing is with her own context. Her context is leading her to react or want those behaviors to disappear or whatever it may be. But because it's like internalized ableism. Yeah, well, I mean, in that, and it's like everything. So like, or for example, um, uh, being af afraid of being judged as a bad parent in public if your child is doing whatever that is. That's our own as parents discomfort and wanting that to, to stop. And to, to and then of course, the other context sometimes of, of um, hopes for the future of your child. You want your child to have an easy life. And well, we say that and then we're like, but we also want them to have challenges. <laughs> um, but it, it's a, I think we need to address um, the, the context and training uh, for the parents. And um, that's when we're able to, like Jeff is saying, those kind of ma that training masking and giving all those internal messages that um, happen when we, when we teach these kids. They do nothing, we're not just teaching them do this in isolation. We are sending those messages through, you know, we can call it, you know, relational framing. If we say this is good, then that means the other one's opposite. And it, it, it really all comes together. And ABA likes to, you know, talk about ACT and, oh, we'll teach parents how to sit with their uncomfortable feelings while we train them to plan to ignore. Like, that's completely wrong. We should be using ACT to help parents sit with their uncomfortable feelings of wanting to have their kids look normal or, or neurotypical, I'm sorry, uh, or uh, wanting their kids to um, live a certain life. And that's where I believe really ABA could be great with a wraparound service uh, with uh, family counseling to really delve deep into those contextual histories. I think it's horrible that we don't take into account like a family's history, especially trauma histories, because trauma is often generational and, and uh, things like emotional neglect and emotional abuse, which is uh, what a, uh, planned ignoring tends to be, um, those are uh, chronic stressors. So chronic toxic stress, which builds into um, a trauma event and trauma triggers and those kind of things. So I really think the focus should be on the family as a whole, uh, not the individual child. Tanisha talks about that all the time. Like you're back, if you want to, I mean, if you want to reiterate, reiterate that and collaboration in your background in mental health and stuff, I think that'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, we did a show and I was talking about how, you know, in, in mental health, we have the, the systems approach and, you know, it's a, it's a family thing. There's no identified patient. It's the entire family together. And then, you know, being able to work with, uh, everyone. Um, and I think for me too, I still struggle with, um, when we're thinking about, um, ABA and what's the alternative being from the mental health background. I still struggle to say that that would be the alternative too to ABA. Honestly, um, we have our stuff over there as well. Um, we have a, a terrible history um, with many different groups. If you aren't white and male, then you know you don't really find your place in mental health uh, either. But I, I definitely think that the systems approach, at least, is just a good another way for us to um, to be able to look at that. Yeah, and so I'm actually starting this fall. Uh, at uh, college again to go to get my mental health counseling degree um, because, and again, talking about trauma is, uh, I think Jeff maybe told me this saying of like, we don't know autism, we only know autism and trauma. And there's so much trauma in this community and they 
they need um, people who are able to like work with this trauma, even though they might have communication differences. Um, but everything we do in ABA, like uh, we could we could do with the parents. Like one, I do um, perspective taking. So um, being able to like if if you work with an OT, get some sensory profiles. You know, be able to really understand um, the sensory perspective of the child, and then have the parent in those situations take the perspective of the child, understanding their sensory differences and all that that comes with being autistic, and and really work hard on perspective taking. Um, but instead we tend to focus on the kids because, you know, autistics apparently can't take perspective. <laughs> I wonder how much of that too comes back to the money conversation that we were having. It's like, if I'm to go in and to say, and to not give like parents, like context. Yes. Like, you know, I, I, I used to work in home for years and um, parents are exhausted. Like they don't have environments, you know, they're shunned from the community. They don't have access to resources to, to care for their kids. Um, and, and yeah, of course I want my kid to follow her social justice issues. Um, <laughs> and, right. and you treat them as the, the solution to those is fix your autistic kid. Um, and, and that's another place that the activist advocacy, autistic community, the neurodiversity affirming allies, this is another role that we play as well is let's target accommodations in society without just bringing this down in the head of of the autistic child of it is your problem that mom gets looked you know mom gets viewed as a bad parent bringing you in a grocery store um that's that that's some of the that's some of the stuff that's that's really and and, and you know i was that kid um and, you know, talking about trauma, like one of the things I will personally share is by the time I was six years old, I could no longer honestly answer the question about what do you want to do when you grow up? Because I was sure I'd kill myself uh, before I become an adult. I never once at any point in my childhood ever thought I would see the age that I am now because um, I felt all of that failure from one of the earliest ages I can remember of, I am a broken person, I am a burden, I am ruining everybody's life. And there's no, uh, there, that's a non-viable position to put people in. Um, and it's not viable for our parents either. Um, but right now we have this society that makes it the kid's fault. And you know, that's a kind of a perfect segue into talking about medical versus social model of disability when we get there. I, I wanted to, um, I definitely think that's a good um, intro. I want to say first, I hear you and, um, you know, I'm responding in the moment emotionally to that. Um, and I also wanted to say that I really want to thank you both for, you know, being here and having this conversation with us. Um, when we when we planned to do the show, we were planning on one show. However, you know, after talking to you tonight, it it looks like, you know, this needs to be a, a two-parter. And I think that, you know, if you all are are okay for it, that we could take this into a double episode. Um, and in the next episode that we do, we 
could talk about the medical and the neurodiversity model, the medical model, the social model, talk about what is neurodiversity, because Jeff, you just brought that up. And for our listeners who may not know. Or you may think, you know, Um, yeah, let's do let's do two. Real fast, I want to like acknowledge to Jeff what you just said. And seriously, like for any um, person working in behavior analysis, if you happen to like be brave and make it this far in the episode, <laughs> um, seriously, like the next time that you come into contact with that that comment that's frustrating or that person from that from the autistic community that that is just outraged with with behavior analysis like seriously think think about what jeff just said and re- like for me it helps to like put a, a face to, you know like there's there's a story behind that you might not know that person's story um and you don't have the right you don't have their consent to know their you know their story but um think about that the next time and and see the pain that's coming through when you all you're seeing is anger and hate coming from their statement like there's pain there can be pain be- behind that there's fear there's all of those things um and and how can you not listen to it when you can for me at least when you when you hear it that way when you when you when it has that context behind it not just somebody's pissed sitting behind a keyboard and wants to take down your company because that's not what it is yeah and and that kind of comes back to like if if aba was just kind of not doing you know uh what autistics wanted uh, autistic individuals wanted and whatever but we are causing trauma we we are hurting people um, and the long-term hurting them. Um, so we know that um, those sensory differences are more, more prone to, to having uh, tr- uh, chronic stress or toxic stress become trauma. Um, mm-hmm. We know that um, autistic individuals um, are uh, about 90% have sensory processing differences. Um, and so things like habituation, and desensitization um, are probably traumatizing the child and just keep, keeping that chronic stress. So when we talk about trauma, it's it's a brain thing, right? So um, what's the, the difference between immersion therapy and torture? If you're not in control of when you can nope out of the immersion immersion therapy, what's the difference? Continue. I just I think I think the silence is I th- no. I think the silence is the answer. There's like. <laughs> But uh, so brain science has come so far. I remember when I was in grad school, we uh, read a study that was something about brain scans. I can't remember what it was, but I do remember there's a test question on it. And it said, what can you take from this study? And it was that we can't, that brain science isn't reliable enough that it's just a bunch of pretty colors on the scans. That, that, was, that was it. Um, but brain science is it's here and it's, we're learning so much and we've learned so much about trauma and how the, the, the systems like the, the amygdala is at that fear center and how a lot of these behaviors we're seeing are, are actually triggered behaviors that are beyond the logical control of the person, the child. And we know that when a, a system has been triggered that often, um, that you're more sensitive to picking up new trauma. So the example I've read um, in, in the book I love about trauma is, um, if you live in the forest with a bear, and so you get better at seeing the signs of the bear, um, the faster that fear response is triggered, the next time, uh, the more likely you are to survive. So the faster you're triggered, the, and the more generalized stimuli, you know, oh, that might be a bear, that might be a bear, that might be a bear. Those all become generalized triggers, and and it becomes stronger. Um, and that's what we're doing <laughs> when we're seeing these behaviors get worse and worse. Um, and a lot of 
things that I see um, with regards to trauma and being triggered or having that fear response kick in is it takes your prefrontal cortex um, offline or decreases it significantly. And prefrontal cortex is where the emotional regulation comes. That's where your language comes. So when a child is having a big behavior um, and we're saying use your words or force prompting them to hand over hand something, we're literally, we're asking them to do something they, they probably cannot do. And planned ignoring, telling them, you know, we're gonna ignore you until you calm down. You're, you're asking them again to emotionally regulate when that system's offline. And so the, the, how little we understand about uh, uh, behaviors that are not uh, top down or logically controlled um, is a problem also. Like we, we are behaviorists, we know behavior and yet we aren't trained on those, those trauma, which is um, react, reflexive, reactive, I'm not sure if I'm using the right words, or emotions and feelings and history and all of those influence how we take in stimuli. And I think I've said this before, your, your contextual history and trauma, all that uh, can change the stimuli from moment to moment. And so being able to understand that is essential to being able to provide services that are not harmful and not causing trauma. Thank you. Um, so with all of that said, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode and close this one out and say thank you for tuning in to beautiful humans we'll see you on the next episode which we're gonna go record right now hey it's denisha and aaron i just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard yeah you know uh we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast so pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal record from your home or your office or at the park Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it. So go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.